0: Well, you ever, you ever feel like your life is on autopilot? You know, like you're going through the motions every day, doing what needs to be done, checking off all the boxes, satisfying your obligations as uh, maybe as a mother or a father or an employee or a student, maybe even as a business owner, right? Just trying to be a responsible adult taking care of all the things that you're supposed to take care of each day. And of course, that's not a bad thing. Uh, By the way, obviously, it's good to be responsible. Uh, But I wonder, does the seemingly endless routine ever discourage you? Does it ever feel like there should be more to your life? Do Do you ever wish there was something different for you to do or to be? something different for you to work toward than simply meeting the basic obligations required to pay your bills and keep your job and then maybe do something fun on the weekends or take a vacation once a year, right? Well, the truth is there is more to life than simply showing up for work and paying your bills, taking care of your house, your family's basic needs. There is. In fact, uh, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, John 10, 10. And when he said that, he wasn't referring to the American dream, by the way. He wasn't talking about owning a home and having a good paying job and building wealth and prosperity in a land of economic opportunity. Now, uh, don't get me wrong. I'm very thankful that I live in a land of economic opportunity. It is nice, but that is not the end goal of the Christian life on this earth, to achieve a certain level of prosperity and security free from risk or discomfort. No, no, life is actually about far more than that. For the follower of Jesus Christ, life is about constantly engaging in activities that we are called by God to engage in, driven by the purpose behind those activities, which ultimately is to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus Christ, okay? The fact is, God created you for infinitely more than simply living a life that serves your purposes more than it serves his purposes, And so if you're currently living your life in such a way that it serves you more than it serves God, I guarantee you, if not already, that you will eventually become dissatisfied with your life as it is. You will because you're serving a purpose that will never be able to satisfy you over a lifetime. You see, our, our own selfish desires, our own purposes for our lives when different from God's purposes for our lives, those can never provide for us long-term satisfaction. The fact is they will always be inadequate to provide the fulfillment that everyone wants in this life. That's why there are so many people... Even Christians who have good jobs and plenty of income and nice houses and wonderful families who attend great churches with close friends and yet they're still dissatisfied with their lives because they're not fulfilling the purpose that God created them to fulfill. And to be clear, every single one of us I want you to understand, we've all been created, each one of us, for a very specific purpose, according to his word. And just in case, uh, maybe you think somehow you've missed that purpose for your life. The apostle Paul said, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Romans eleven twenty nine, 29, which means no matter what you've done with your life up to this point and no matter how you're currently living your life, God's calling and his gifts that enable you to fulfill that calling are just as relevant and available to you right now as they have ever been at any other point in your life. Now, it's also true that your life has to be submitted to Christ in order for that calling to be realized in your life, but the point is, As long as you're still breathing, there's still a God-given purpose for you to fulfill in this world. As long as you're alive, you have unfinished business to attend to because every single moment of your life on this earth is infused with God's divine purpose. Every single moment, every moment of your life has been given to you by God for a reason, A great purpose for you to fulfill. Again, the Apostle Paul said, we are his workmanship, meaning God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. And when Paul says we should walk in those good works which God prepared for us beforehand, that word walk, it's one of Paul's favorite words, is the ancient Greek word peripateo, which was a reference to how a person would conduct their entire life, how you live, how you occupy your time. In fact, it was actually a Hebrew idiom, a Hebrew saying that pictured a person's life as a road that one traveled along. So you get the picture. Paul's saying, look, God has created you in Christ Jesus for for a very good purpose, a very specific reason. And that purpose should define how you live your entire life. King David wrote about the Lord. He said, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. This is my favorite part. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet There was none of them, Psalm 139, 13 through 16. Every single moment of your life has been given to you by God for a very specific reason, a great purpose, in fact, for you to fulfill. Now, of course, you may choose to avoid or ignore or even reject that purpose for which you have been created, and of course, many people do just that. They choose their own purpose over God's instead of accepting his purpose as their own. And the result is that there are multitudes of good people today, successful people, prosperous people, smart people, yes, even Christian people, faith-filled believers who are wholly dissatisfied with their lives because they're not attending to the unfinished business that God put them on this planet to attend to. And, of course, that isn't a phenomenon unique to this uh, modern age, as we'll see today. In every age... God's people have at times neglected his purposes for their lives. And so this morning, as we embark on a new new sermon series together, working our way through the book of Judges, we're not only going to see this played out in the lives of God's people, but we'll also find in this story some of the most common reasons why people in every age choose, knowingly or not, to reject God's purposes for their lives. And, And make no mistake, what we learn Uh, from God's people then applies just as much to God's people today because although, listen, because although human culture constantly changes, human nature never changes. The motivations for why we do or do not do what God has created us to do Those motivations are rooted in human nature, which is the same throughout the ages from Adam and Eve right up to today. And so my hope is that we will learn from God's people then not to repeat the mistakes of the past now, right? And instead as a a local expression of his church, as this family that we are, that we would instead learn together how to live the most satisfying and fulfilling lives that we possibly can as we pursue together God's great purpose for us and indeed his great purpose for this world. So let's turn there to the book of Judges now and just a a little backstory here before we read. Judges picks up right after the book of Joshua, which you know if if you've been here, we just recently went through, where the Israelites under the command of Joshua had crossed the river Jordan and occupied the promised land, the land of Canaan, having driven out a large portion of their enemies from the land, but not all of them. And so this first chapter of Judges picks up the story after the main military conquest is over and the people have actually been living in peace and in relative comfort in Canaan now for over 25 years. And one other point I just want to, to you to be aware of as we begin. Uh, chapter 1 in this book is not only a bridge between Joshua and Judges, but it's also basically an introduction and a bit of an overview of the rest of the book of Judges, which is why chapter 1 opens up with the death of Joshua, but then in chapter 2, Joshua's alive. Because chapter 1 basically gives us an overview of the the disposition and activities of the Israelites during this time of the Judges. And then the rest of the book after chapter 1 sort of fills in all the details, okay? So let's begin. We'll start by reading from chapter 1 of Judges, verses 1 through 10. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, "'Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them?' The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. That was actually a fairly common practice in ancient warfare to keep the king from being able to fight again. He couldn't pick up a sword or charge into battle without his thumbs or toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table as I have done so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Aiman and Talmai. So at this point, Uh, It seems as if everything is going well for the Israelites, and indeed it has been. For over two and a half decades since the fighting had ended, the Israelites have been at peace, right? They've been prospering in Canaan, enjoying the land and all that it produced from uh, generations of Canaanites who worked the land before the Israelites ever got there. So the Israelites had settled into a very comfortable life that was already producing much for them in this new homeland. There was only one problem. All throughout the conquest leading up to this point, God commanded the Israelites over and over again to exercise what is called the Karim principle, which was very familiar to the Hebrew people at that time. Uh, The word Karim, which we don't really have a good equivalent for in our modern English language, is an ancient Hebrew word. It's a noun that referred to something which was set apart as sacred property. And then when used in its verb form, as it is in chapter 6, verse 18 of the book of Joshua during the Israelites' conquest of Canaan, it describes a special action of setting something apart permanently as property of God, either for service or for sometimes destruction. And so when entire cities or entire populations were placed under Karim, that usually involved the complete annihilation of that city and its people, which, uh, which by the way wasn't unique to the Israelites, okay? In the Mesha steel or the Moabite stone, which is located in modern day Jordan, there are ninth century inscriptions that describe King Mesha of Moab capturing entire Israelite cities and putting them under Kerem, under total destruction in order to honor the Moabite God, Kemesh. So the point being, Uh, The principle of Karim was widely understood in the ancient Near East uh, by many people so that this order by God through Joshua to the Israelites would have been very clearly understood. Now listen, I understand that that offends our modern sensibilities, and I get it. But you have to understand that this Karim principle was employed by God to prevent his chosen people from experiencing precisely what they ended up experiencing throughout the book of Judges, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, because they failed to follow through with this care principle. Now listen, the Canaanites were deeply, profoundly wicked people. You can read all the gory details, if you like, in Leviticus 18, 6 through 30 and Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14. In fact, we have ancient apocryphal writings such as the 2nd century BC Wisdom of Solomon, which together with biblical literature details Canaanite practices of witchcraft, incest, bestiality, child sacrifice they would sacrifice their own children by burning them alive and then cannibalizing their flesh and drinking their blood innocent children not to mention just about every other kind of sexual deviation you do not want to imagine and that's just to name a few of the canaanites favorite pastimes okay is it any wonder that God commanded his people to destroy or completely drive out of the land the Canaanites because he didn't want the Israelites mixing their Hebrew culture with the Canaanite culture. And again, it was a command that the Israelites very clearly understood. There was zero chance that they made an innocent mistake by allowing the Canaanites to remain among them. And the results were disastrous, as we'll see throughout the rest of the book. And it starts right here. In these first 10 verses where at really at a cursory reading, a casual reading, it appears that the Israelites did just what God wanted them to do. And yet when we dig a little deeper, we find that not to be the case at all. Okay, No one would argue against the importance of Jerusalem to the Hebrew people. Jerusalem, in fact, is one of the oldest cities in the world, right? It's been occupied almost continually for 5,000 years. In fact, it's mentioned in ancient Egyptian execration texts all the way back to the 19th century BC and also in the Tell El Armana letters from 14th century BC Egypt. Unquestionably. Jerusalem was a very important city-state and a strategic site for the Israelites. And of course, verse 8 says, the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire, which sounds like they did exactly what they were supposed to do. And yet we'll see in verse 21, they actually failed to completely destroy Jerusalem. Or drive the Canaanites out of the city, which in fact is a pattern that continues throughout this part of the story for the Israelites in city after city after city, all right? The, the Israelites have been called by God to fully occupy the land of Canaan, exterminating or expelling the Canaanite people, and yet because there are clearly still very many Canaanites in the land, the Israelites have unfinished business to attend to, and yet right from the start they fail to fully answer that calling by God, despite all that he's done for them up to this point. Now, why is that? Well, the first clue is found in the first five words of the chapter, after the death of Joshua. Okay, up to this point, the Israelites have had strong leaders. It was Moses, of course, who led them out of Egypt and through the wilderness for 40 long, hard years. And of course, in Numbers 27 uh, and also in Deuteronomy 31, we find Moses naming his successor, Joshua. It's Joshua who led the people into the land of Canaan and through battle after battle until they subdued their enemies and took control of the land. But Joshua, however, made no such provision for a successor we don't know why and at this point it doesn't really matter why because the fact remains the israelite circumstances had just changed drastically they were now entering into a 340 year period without any continuous national leadership and so for two generations at least they've been led by these fearless men of god and now they're without a singular leader. They're without that sole voice guiding them into battle. Their circumstances have changed drastically. And because of it, they're beginning to lose sight of their calling. Okay? Changing circumstances is one of the most common reasons that people abandon their calling by God. Right? If you consider the church, something happens at church a new pastor, a new policy, a new building, a change in leadership and all of a sudden people aren't called to that ministry anymore. Right? How many times have we heard about people who were serving God but when their circumstances change significantly they abandon that calling and refuse to finish the works that they were created for on this earth. Now, look, I know sometimes the change of circumstances can be profound. Maybe your spouse leaves. A relationship is broken. A career is lost. Maybe your health begins to fail. Your future becomes uncertain and your confidence is shattered because your circumstances have been completely turned upside down. I get it, but tell me, what bearing does that have on the purpose that God created you for? I guess, of course, the means by which you accomplish that calling may have to change because of a change in your circumstances. But listen, the calling itself is not gone. The calling is not dead. No, the calling remains. The calling is irrevocable. Listen, a change in your circumstances does not constitute a change in your calling. Joshua was dead. Israel was in a major time of transition. Their circumstances had changed drastically, but the calling was the same. Drive the Canaanites out of the land. The calling was exactly the same after nearly three decades of living in Canaan as it was the day they arrived. It had not changed one bit. And listen, neither has yours. Certainly God may add to that calling in your life, whatever it is, the scope of your ministry may grow over time, but the purpose for which you were created has not changed. Whatever God has called you to, whatever dream he's placed in your heart, whatever purpose you were designed and created to fulfill, that calling, that dream, that purpose belongs to you as much today as it ever has at any other moment in your life. No matter how drastically your circumstances have changed, no matter how much difficulty you are facing, no matter how hard the road ahead appears to be, you are as called to that purpose today as you were the day he first placed it in your heart. So don't stop dreaming. Don't stop working. Don't stop moving forward. Don't stop pursuing that calling on your life because look, no matter how seemingly impossible your circumstances may appear today, God is bigger than every obstacle. He is stronger than every storm and he has the final word over every single circumstance. Whatever he's called you to, he's given you what you need to fulfill that calling. And as Paul said, those gifts and that calling are irrevocable. That means there's no power on earth or in hell below that can ever stop you from fulfilling that calling. In fact, the only thing that can ever stop you from answering the call of God in your life is you. All right, every single one of us has unfinished business in this world as long as we're in this world. Don't allow your circumstances to keep you from that calling. As we read the next five verses, 11 through 15, we're going to pay close attention to Caleb, who is now brought back into the story. So let's read it together, verses 11 through 15. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-sephir. And Caleb said, He who attacks kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. She dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water." Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So Caleb defeats the Sheshai and the Aiman and the Talmai back in verse 10. All descendants, by the way, of Anak, the head of the Anakim, the, the giant clans that frequently troubled the Israelites. And then he moves on to Kiriath Sefer, which in the ancient Hebrew means city of the scroll. So this would have been a learning center with a scribal school and probably a very large library, which is also probably why they captured it instead of destroying it. And under the leadership of Othniel, who was, uh, uh, by the way, probably a distant relative uh, of Caleb, or uh, maybe just a member of the same clan. He's described in the text as Caleb's younger brother, but the word brother in the Hebrew is not only used um, to mean brother, the word och, But it was also often used to refer to someone who was simply from the same clan or a distant relative or sometimes even an ally. And so Othniel successfully takes the city. And as a result, Caleb gives his daughter Aksa in marriage to Othniel and gives them the land of the Negev, which lacks a water supply. It's a dry piece of dirt. And so Aksa goes directly to her father Caleb and asks for additional land with the water supply because land at that time without a water supply was basically useless, right? The fact that she did that is the very picture of a woman who would not be denied Her full inheritance okay if it would have been an honor for her at that time to be given in marriage to a war hero from her own clan but when she's given what she deems to be an inadequate inheritance she asks her husband to go speak to her father which would have been the appropriate thing to do culturally but when that doesn't produce the result she's looking for she goes straight to Caleb herself and gets off of her donkey and says I need some more land and this time give me some with some water In other words, she's not allowing her circumstances to dictate her inheritance. She wants everything that she can possibly have from her father. So she goes to him directly, which actually is a great lesson for all of us today about pursuing God's fulfillment in your life, even when your circumstances are not in your favor. Right? And then as we look a little deeper into the background of Caleb, you find that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, Do you know that Caleb, the same man who was one of the chief spies sent out by Moses, the same man who persevered when the other spies wanted to hide in fear, the same man who was far more devoted to God than most of his peers, The same man who alone is described in scripture no less than six times as a man who has wholly followed the Lord, a man who continued, by the way, to successfully conquer lands inhabited by giants in Canaan well into his 80s. Do you know that Caleb was not even a Jew? Caleb was a Gentile. He's described in several places in Scripture as the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. Numbers 32, 12, uh, Numbers 34, 19, Joshua 14:6. 6. Jephunneh was a descendant of Kenaz, father of the Kenizzites, one of the tribes of Esau. You can read about it in Genesis 36, 10, and 11. Caleb was a Gentile. And so when Israel came out of Egypt, there was a mixed multitude that came out with them, according to Exodus 12, 38. And Caleb was a part of that mixed multitude who later married into the tribe of Judah. So this man, Caleb, this man of incredible faith and courage who accomplished more than most Jews as a leader in the tribe of Judah was actually a Gentile. Now just consider at the time his circumstances, born a Gentile, enslaved in Egypt, right? As far as the Egyptian world and the Jewish worlds were consumed, uh, concerned, Caleb was a nobody. What future did he have? Right? According to his circumstances, there was absolutely zero hope for any kind of purposeful life for Caleb, right? Both ethnically and circumstantially, but he was called by God. He was determined to live with great purpose, and so there was no circumstance on earth that could stop him from fulfilling that calling on his life. Okay, look, your circumstances are going to change throughout your life. They do all the time. Things happen to us, obviously, that are unexpected, and some of those circumstances, I know, can be extremely difficult Difficult, but that in no way, shape, or form invalidates your calling. The Apostle Paul did his very best work in a cold, dark, wet prison. The Apostle John had his greatest impact on this world from a cave while exiled on a deserted island. Joseph was able to save an entire nation only because he'd been sold into slavery by his own family. Rahab saved the lives of her family and secured her own future in the line of Jesus Christ while her people were under siege and the city she lived in was burning to the ground around her I understand that your circumstances may make pursuing the calling of God on your life seem impossible right now but consider what he's accomplished through others in their most difficult hours Because a change in circumstances does not constitute a change in your calling. Listen to me. God has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten you. He has not changed his mind about you and he is not finished with you. You are as called today as you've ever been, which means there's work for you to attend to. There is unfinished business in your life that God wants to accomplish through you. And there is no circumstance on earth that can keep you from accomplishing that work. The only thing that can stop you is you. Let's keep reading. Verses 16 through 26. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father in law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms, that's another name for Jericho, uh, into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zepheth and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please, show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. So the Israelites continue their march through Canaan, and yet all along the way they fail to finish the job. In verse 16, the Kenites, a nomadic clan very closely related to the Amalekites, are permitted to settle with the Israelites in the Negeb. In verse 18, Judah captures Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, three major Philistine cities, but is not able to hold them because they didn't finish the job of driving the Philistines out, as we see later in chapters 14, chapter 16, and in 1 Samuel. All three of those cities revert back to Philistine control. In verse 19, the Canaanites and the Philistines were permitted to remain in the plains. In verse 21, the Jebusites were permitted to remain in Jerusalem. In verses 25 and 26, a man and his family from Bethel were permitted to establish themselves into Hittite lands, which would be modern-day Syria and Turkey. And as we'll see in this last section of the chapter, not fully getting the job done, stopping short of fulfilling their calling becomes a pattern with the Israelites, because not only had their circumstances changed, but they had become satisfied with less than God's best. All right, the Israelites had already occupied Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. They already had a comfortable home in a productive land. They were already at peace. They had already become the dominant people group in Canaan. They were satisfied with life as it was. They were satisfied to leave God's purposes for them unfinished because they were satisfied with less than God's best, which I am convinced is the very same state of mind that plagues the American church today. We've been blessed with so much that we've become satisfied with what is good, comfort, security, prosperity, predictability at the expense of experiencing what is best the fulfillment that only comes when we live our lives radically sold out to the purposes of God that we were created for. Okay, the hard truth is sometimes you have to give up what is good to get what is best. It is very comfortable to be a Christian in our culture today, so why, why rock the boat, right? What's the big deal? Why, why get everyone all worked up now? Besides, look at what we've accomplished as a church in this world. Hospitals, orphanages, churches, and schools built all over this planet. Wells dug, food planted, the poor have been clothed, the hungry have been fed, missionaries have evangelized people groups all over the world. And for the most part, we're generally accepted into mainstream culture in this country. That is all good. We're in a really good place right now. So why isn't it enough for us to just attend church, to worship together on the weekends, and occasionally write a check for a good cause? Well, it's because as good as we have it, we are far from God's best. In fact, we haven't even scratched the surface of all that he's called us to, all that we're capable of. And by the way, by the way sometimes God's best isn't comfortable at all. Sometimes it is terribly risky. Sometimes it requires tremendous sacrifice, and often it is anything but certain. Yet I honestly believe the vast majority of Christians who have settled for anything less than the radical call of Christ to abandon everything else in their lives and follow Him— I believe the vast majority of those Christians deep down know that there is more that God designed and created and purposed their lives for than what they have currently settled for. Which again, uh, it's not hard at all to find professing believers who are living very comfortable lives and yet at the same time are deeply unfulfilled because they've settled for less than God's best for them. And I'm just telling you, the only prescription... The only solution, the only remedy to deep-seated unfulfillment in your life is to stop settling for anything less than total abandonment to the call of Christ on your life. Okay? If you're not a believer and follower of Jesus Christ today, that means submitting your life to Him in humble repentance and then choosing to follow Him into a life of true faith and hope and love. If you are a follower of Christ today, that means refusing to settle for anything less than what he has created you for and called you to, which also means giving up anything and everything in your life, anything and everything that stands in the way of you actually doing that, right? Jesus said, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, For me, it was killing my career, shutting down two businesses, selling homes and personal belongings, leaving family and friends, and the only life I'd ever known to start all over again at nearly 40 years old without the income, without the comfort, without the predictability that I'd grown accustomed to. Why? Because I'd finally come to the place in my life where I was no longer satisfied with less than God's best. So I made a decision that day, to follow the call of Christ for my life without compromise or hesitation. And I'm telling you, at times it has been very hard. At times we've struggled greatly along the way. At times I've made plenty of mistakes. At times we haven't been able to see or predict what was going to happen next, if, if what we were doing would even work, if it would succeed, if it would last I'm telling you it hasn't been an easy road, but listen, the payoff has been worth every single difficult day, every season of lack, every battle we've had to fight to see this call of Christ on our lives being fulfilled because what is being produced in our lives now is building his kingdom instead of ours. And You see, that's the key. The Israelites had become more interested in building their own kingdom uh, than they were with building his. And so they were no longer willing to pay the price for God's best. And to be sure, there is a price. That's exactly why people stop short of God's best today. It's why they leave unfinished business in their lives because they're not willing to pay what it costs to see God's purposes fully fulfilled in their lives. I'm a part of a a church planting team in South Carolina for this fellowship of churches that we're affiliated with, and so I meet with young couples all the time who tell me they want to plant a church, and one of my first questions for them is this, tell me what would make you quit, and so often the answer is something along the lines of, well, I guess if we ran out of money, we would quit, or... I guess if no one shows up, we would quit, or maybe if people are against us, maybe then we would quit, to which I reply, you'd better go ahead and quit right now, because you will run out of money, and there will be days when people won't show up, and there will most certainly be those who are against you. You see, if you're not willing to pay the price for God's best in your life, then you cannot expect to reap the reward of his best in your life. The truth is sometimes you have to give up what is good to get what is best. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 27 to the end of the chapter. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of beth and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol, so the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Olib, or of Akzib or of Helba or of Afik or of Rahab, so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harris, in Ajalon, in Shalbim, but the, land of the, the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. The border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akribim from Selah and upward. Unfinished business. It's a pattern for the Israelites of stopping short of all that God had called them to, and it continued throughout. And here's why it mattered the Canaanites' entire culture revolved around three things materialism, money of one form or another, illicit sex. And pagan religion. Sounds sort of familiar. The Canaanites' entire culture revolved around those three things. This is why God's people then and now are called to be set apart. Listen, not isolated from our culture, not aloof, certainly not arrogant, but set apart in our convictions and in our devotion to Jesus Christ. But listen, that means living lives that are radically different from what we find commonly in our culture because it's loving people who don't love us back. It's giving away what we've been given. It's preferring others over ourselves. It's following Jesus Christ wherever he leads us, which is decidedly counter to our culture. And I'm telling you at times, it's a very difficult way to live your life. And the fact is, most people are not willing to live that way. So they attempt to reconcile their own obsessions with their religion by trying to serve God on their own terms instead of on his. It's precisely how the Israelites tried to reconcile forcing their enemies into servitude instead of forcing them out of the promised land as God had commanded them because they were doing what we often try to do today, serving God on our own terms. The problem with that for the follower of Christ is that we don't get to have a relationship with God on our terms. No, he enters into a relationship with us on His terms. Okay? We are created by God, called by God, saved by God, and sustained by God. The Apostle Paul said that we're called according to His purpose. Romans eight twenty eight. God calls us according to His purpose, not ours. And so listen, as great as our plans for our lives may be, they can never compare to His plans for our lives. But that means meeting Him on his terms. We have to be willing to pay the price to accept the cost of following him on his terms. There's no easy button. There are no shortcuts. There's no way around it. If you want to become all that you were created to be, if you want to do all that he's called you to do, then you are going to have to meet God on his terms. The Israelites throughout their history, and even throughout this book, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, were in and out of relationship with God because at times, instead of following His plan, they wanted God to follow their plan. And to be truthful, not much has changed with this people today. We like a God we can control that we can manipulate, that we can coax into putting his stamp of approval on how we decide to live our lives and then we wonder why it isn't working out, why we're dissatisfied, why we feel so unfulfilled, why it isn't working out like we thought it would. Can you see how absurd that is? When we defiantly choose to live our lives on our own terms and then wonder why God isn't making us happy. We want him to bless our choices and approve of our lifestyles and smile on our sin. But listen, we were created to serve God. It's not the other way around. He isn't subject to satisfy our demands or obligated to honor our will. On the contrary, we are subject to satisfy his commands and we're obligated to honor his will. Because we were created to serve him. It's not the other way around. So if you're currently living your life in such a way that it serves you more than it serves God, listen, if not already, you will eventually become dissatisfied with your life. You absolutely will because you're living in a way that is contrary to how you were created to live. That will never sustain you. All right, Jesus said he came to give us abundant life, but that abundant life will only be experienced on his terms. You see, every single moment of your life has been given to you by God for a reason, a great purpose for you to fulfill. And look, there is nothing, listen, there's nothing random about God, which means there's nothing random about your life you hear me? The fact that there's nothing random about God means there is nothing random about your life. Before you were ever born, he crafted a plan for every single one of your days, a plan for good, a plan for abundance, a plan for blessing, a plan for meaning, a plan for great purpose. Not always an easy plan, but the most fulfilling life you could ever hope to live. And as long as you're alive, it is never too late to fulfill that purpose, to live that life. In fact, the only thing that can ever stop you from living that life is you. So honestly, do you really want to look back at the end of your life and say, I played it safe? I took the easy road. I worked really hard my whole career so I could be comfortable. Or do you want to look back at the end of your life and be able to say, I gave it everything I had. I spent every ounce of my energy and talent and money and strength and passion and purpose following Jesus Christ. I've left nothing on the table no unfinished business I gave it all that I had I fought the good fight I finished the race you understand that is the life that you've been created for why settle for anything less let's pray